0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. Be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or ACAS and leave us a review. Obviously a five star review would be great. Um, and we'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes to, to give us a review as well. So again, we're, we're not in the studio. We're uh, recording remotely um, and joining Brian and myself. We're, we're talking to associate professor karen hum of one of our wonderful emergency and critical care um team members as well as uh the lead of the transfusion medicine service at the at the rbc and and we thought we'd talk about xenotransfusion so thank you very much karen for joining us
1: cool. Thank you for
0: asking, Tom. Well, you know, it was no no, um, uh, no difficulty considering we share an office. Although I did email you for for <laughs> this uh, for this request. Um, so, uh, so I suppose Zeno um, transfusions have they um, have they been around a, a while, Karen?
1: <laughs> yes. So, I mean, Zeno transfusions in the true sense is um, transfusing one species blood to another um and when we think about them generally we think about dog blood to cats because that's probably the major use you'd be thinking of and the time when they're most convenient but um actually the first xenotransfusions were from animals to humans because of abo incompatibilities they knew that before they'd worked out exactly how that system worked they knew that if you gave some humans blood to another human it could lead to um sudden death due to anaphylactic reaction so um or an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction so they um they tried with different animals um and so yeah that's those are the first xenotransfusions like sheep blood to humans for example
0: and, and when we're talking about xenotransfusions what 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 species are, are we talking about and to, to which other species Karen
1: so it could be any but as I say generally we're thinking dog blood to cats because we tend to have a lot more dog blood then we do cat blood. Dogs are bigger than cats. It's just much more convenient. Um, you could do it between other species and it has been suggested and in fact done. But generally, that's that's kind of where the need lies. There's a, generally a more of a shortage of feline blood and easier, more easily available cat canine blood
0: okay and so and so why did we go down this route so, so were there different alternatives or or is it just that sort of resourcing of 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 cat blood because i imagine this hasn't been a a new a new problem um and it's not something new so so i suppose what was the motivation for um for for you to look into this
1: yeah no it's it's a good point it's not a new problem but as critical care's advanced um the need for cat blood has increased and what we used to have when you and I first started at the r v c Dom was oxyglobin, so hemoglobin based oxygen carrier, and they that was used when we couldn't um get hold of cat blood we'd use. What H uh, is what the acronym is. Actually, there there is rumours that H are coming back, or a type of HBOC is going to be coming back, and actually in the vaguely near future, which might make xenotransfusions less desirable. But at the moment, they're not available. Those rumours have been going on for some time. So until that point, um, xenotransfusions are probably here with us.
0: And and so when you're um, thinking about using a xenotransfusion, so what what so obviously we're, we're talking about. Uh, Administering to this cats, as, as you've said. So, so what um, what would make you think I need to give a xenotransfusion rather than rather than um, cat blood to to a patient? What, what's your frame?
1: So, I think there are there are a few reasons described in the literature the the most simple one is we don't have any feline blood. And that might be particularly say if you're worried, I think in general practice, you're worried about trying to get hold of B blood because it's harder to find. It's a less common blood type, so you may well not have a B donor. But you might not have an A donor either, so it might just be you don't have cat blood available. The other probably major indication would be if you don't or can't, you don't have time or you can't, don't have the ability because you don't have um, blood typing equipment to type your cat. So if you don't, if you can't type your recipient, we know that um, type B cats can have very, very strong anti-A antibodies. And so transfusion of type A blood to type B cats can result in a fatal transfusion reaction so it may be safer if you can't type your cat to administer a xenotransfusion canine blood because in the literature there's no report of a fatal transfusion reaction um on first transfusion of canine blood so that might be a reason so either you can't get hold of cat blood or you can't type your cat i think there's probably one thing that's worth mentioning as well actually that is worth considering. And that's um, if you think this cat has a dire prognosis. So you alluded to the fact we've done some work on this, Dom, and Alice Legal, one of our residents, um, published on xenotransfusions. And Interestingly, the few of the cats in that, that case series that we looked at um, they had um, cats that probably did have a very poor prognosis, for example, some were administered a xenotransfusion during CPR now admittedly, it may have been that they didn 't have time to tra- to um, blood type them, but if you 've got a cat undergoing CPR, their prognosis is generally so guarded that administering um, a xenotransfusion might be more appropriate in the sense that we've got more canine blood spare than we do feline. So that might be another reason. If the prognosis is so guarded that it feels almost like a waste to be administering maybe a slightly more precious product. Does that sound fair?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that, that certainly sounds sounds fair. So so are there reasons not to give a xenotransfusion
1: yes definitely um and i think xenotransfusions are very contentious we should definitely say that so um if you have um a plentiful supply of feline blood and then it may well be that you you find the the um, administration of canine blood quite um ridiculous because it doesn't last, when you give canine blood to a cat, the vast majority of those cats are going to break that that blood down in varying speed, um, and then you'll be back to where you started. Now, if you have a cat, say, that had blood loss as a cause of anemia say trauma and they started to break the blood the canine blood transfusion down after say three days and it's going to be variable some cats were seeing breaking the blood down the transfused canine blood down as quickly as well within 24 hours in the first maybe perhaps even during the transfusion period um but if they hold on to it a little while and then they start to break that blood down by then it maybe they've started to regenerate themselves and actually they can cope without a second transfusion and that's fine But if you, say, have a cat with a non-regenerative process or an ongoing destruction of their red cells, say like IMHA, it may be you give the xenotransfusion and um, once it's broken down, the cat's in no better state. And those transfused cells haven't actually done very much. They've given you maybe a few days. Now, those few days might be enough to allow you to blood type the cat and to get hold of a suitable donor. But if you have enough feline blood, it does seem a bit of a waste to... um, to um give the canine blood and actually it may be associated with some morbidity and not just the fact the cells don't last very long but there may be some morbidity associated with it so if when the cat breaks down the cells for example they probably feel a bit grotty they often get a pyrexia and they may be feeling a bit rubbish during the the um process of hemolysis also the um there may be when, when the cats break down the, um, the canine transfusion, they can, you can see hemoglobinemia, And we know that haemoglobin is a potential cause of acute kidney injury. So it may cause some renal issues. So there's a few reasons why you might not want to do it. And that's why it's such a contentious issue. And I think for people who have a really big supply of feline blood, they can often say, well, you shouldn't do this it's wrong. Um, but I think maybe that's not a very pragmatic position, looking at people in practice where they may not have access to to feline blood or even referral institutes too.
0: So, so is that stigma, do you think, attached to um, giving a, a, a foreign protein um, to do with the fact that it will be broken down faster? Or the fact do you think it's a bit more about a, availability of the of the other products. Because I suppose what you're um I suppose alluding to is that we tend well you tend to have used this in times where you need to give a transfusion very quickly and it's time dependent and might not have the resources. So I suppose for that individual animal then unfortunately the the um without the ability to to carry around um uh, oxygen then then obviously they probably have a high chance of dying so what it's kind of like a patch a life-saving patch one one might say um but it's just not not ideal
1: yeah absolutely that's a really good way of talking about it dom It's it's a plaster it's something it's a scaffold to get you through to the next stage um And, yeah, you need to be – I think it's a very pragmatic decision when you give a xenotransfusion. It could never be described as gold standard. And so, therefore, people can look and say, well, that's not the right thing to do, but – You need to be able to think about what's the best thing for that individual patient in that position. Um, And so there's often quite a geographical bias because, say, in some countries, particularly, say, North America, um, feline blood is much more readily available, whereas in Europe, not so much. And then in other parts of the world, again, maybe not so much. It's it's very dependent where you um, where you practice. And so I think it's very easy to make judgments when you're not necessarily working in that situation.
0: And, and do you think sort of going back to when you were talking about um, um, hemoglobin based oxygen carriers? So, so do you think that if we were to get one back, because those weren't um, themselves without certain issues as well, except they didn't cause immunological reactions but they were sort of broken down quite quickly do you think that would be something um, to, to compare I suppose in contrast maybe morbidity and mortality associated with it, with a xenotransfusion compared to a hemoglobin based oxygen carrier do you think that's the kind of patch that of, of a, a comparison if there if there was one
1: yeah nothing is perfect so the H-box, as you say, oxyglobin had real issues because um, it often caused marked volume overload. Um, it messed up your biochemistry panel. Um, and so that was a problem. And so, you know, cats with occult HCM could often be pushed into failure. The... <sighs> Feel you know a, a non-Zeno transfusion, so a standard transfusion, a feline transfusion, still has risks associated with it. There are risks with every therapy. To treat an anemic patient, to provide extra oxygen carrying capacity, there's no simple answer. So it's about trying to choose the best possible option for that cat in that situation with that owner. And that's a really important point as well, because we need to go through these things really carefully with the owner to make sure they understand what their options are. And they can make an educated decision.
0: So, so, what what do you say to owners about uh, having a xenotransfusion and consenting for that?
1: Yeah, so xenotransfusion is not a um, not standard protocol for us, and so I think it's something that you need to be very careful and talk to owners about, and talk to them about why it's suboptimal. Um, so, like I say, the fact it's not going to last very long, and um, that um, it potentially could cause acute kidney injury and then probably most importantly that this is a one-off therapy so there are some older studies which show that if you um, administer canine blood to cats they it doesn't last very long all the things we've talked about but they generally cope with the transfusion very well but if you administer it a second time once the once the cat has developed um, antibodies against the canine blood, and we're not sure exactly which which antigen they're developing them against, but once they've developed those antibodies, a second transfusion usually results in a fatal acute hemolytic transfusion reaction, much like the one I described that could happen with type B cats when administered type A blood. So, it's really important that this transfusion, the xenotransfusion transfusion, is never repeated. So that really clearly needs to be communicated to the owner. It needs to be put on the records, and if that cat ever um, trans- transfers to a different practice, that needs to be made clear to the new practice. The problem with all of this is that we know that cats can um, go missing, that cats um, sometimes transfer between owners and that transfer may not be easy. So so the communication between owners may not be clear. So it's really important to realise that if you administer a xenotransfusion particularly in a cat, a slightly older cat, that they may have had one before. And, you know, you need to really carefully check with the owner how long they've had that cat. And if they haven't had that cat all its life, say it's a rescue cat, you have to again explain that if they've had a previous xenotransfusion, that this one could be fatal. It's unlikely. Like xenotransfusions are done, but they're not very common. But it's just making sure the owner is aware of all the, um, all the risks involved. And I think generally when you're doing a xenotransfusion, it's because you've got very few other options. And the owner needs to understand that, but um, you need to explain the risks involved.
0: So, so are there any separate, um, like legal um, considerations that one has to consider? I suppose we can only speak in the in the UK re- regarding sort of xenotransfusions. Because I imagine we actually give sort of recombinant human products to to other other species as as well, don't we? And and obviously like we have owner consent sort of for that. So I suppose is that is is it part of that same Uh, idea
1: yeah so we have um you're right we you know human serum albumin intravenous immunoglobulins. there are products that are used um that are human-based products generally it's generally human-based human products that are given to um dogs and cats rather than necessarily canine products in general to um to cats uh, but, um, but yeah and, and tetanus antitoxin there are all sorts of things that are out there that are um, products that are produced in one animal and given to another but I think um, legally it is recognised practice in that it's described in the literature um, but for us we have a special consent form that goes through the risks and and discusses the fact that you know we need to know about pre- any previous xeno transfusions and that's partly a belt and braces kind of legal protection I guess but also to make sure both the vet and the owner stop and think before the xeno is administered and like I say particularly regarding for the owner's point of view knowing whether or not they've had a previous xeno transfusion in Alice's study um, she showed that most people retain that information pretty well um, because it was hammered home by the um, vet that once they had the xenotransfusion, they could never have another one. But we need to keep doing that, making sure owners are aware.
0: And so so we've made a decision to give um, a feline patient a xenotransfusion. So, So should you consider, even if you don't have the ability on site, to blood type that cat prior to a xenotransfusion? Is that going to interfere with Blood typing the cat
1: we're not aware that xenotransfusion interferes with blood typing, but I think that um it's worth um blood typing anyway um probably before if you can, but if you can't, it probably is okay to blood type afterwards um but I think you want to blood type as soon as possible if you think that that um that you know if that cat is going to need probably further therapy if once the xenotransfusion has worn off and been um broken down so i think probably it's worth um worth um blood typing definitely and i would I d- We've got no evidence that administer- administration of um, canine cells interferes with the typing process. So if you only only type after you've started the xenotransfusion, that's fine. But I would type ASAP so that you know what you can um, what you can what you need to administer once the xenotransfusion
0: is um, destroyed. I, I, I suppose I for people maybe using the um, the card sort of typing, suppose, is there a risk of auto? agglutination and that and that confusing typing like
1: post um yeah so potentially potentially and we talk about that when we talk about um when we talk about you know animals having had previous transfusions any sort of previous transfusion xeno you know, or non xeno could it cause insane agglutination or auto agglutination I don't know if it's more of a theoretical problem than a real one. Um we don't tend to see um, agglutination in these patients, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. And probably the easiest thing to do if you're worried about that is to if you've only got card typing, is to take a sample and you can send to a lab um where they could do an immunocro I can never say this, immunochromatographic method.
0: Um and so, so if it doesn't necessarily if it doesn't necessarily matter to, to type the cat before, but ideally that's that's a good good practice. Does it matter what type of dog blood you give the cat?
1: Yeah so we know that that, um, the antigens on the red canine red cells are different to the antigens on feline red cells which is why they form antibodies against them the cats form antibodies against the canine red cells and destroy them we don't know which antigens they particularly focus on and probably it's actually a multitude but there's no evidence that DEA1 which is what we tend to type for um, in dogs is any more immunogenic or important in Im- immunogenicity um, than than any other antigens so we don't tend to worry about administering da1 negative blood essentially whichever type you give it seems to be destroyed
0: and and if we go say okay we're, we're giving some uh, dog blood are there any sort of different practicalities of administration that you would um, uh, that, that you would suggest? different than giving a normal transfusion to or i suppose a species specific transfusion
1: well yeah it's an interesting question isn't it because um really it's we're tending to give i suppose we're tending to give packed red cells at the rbc but you could be giving whole blood um and what actually to me is really one of the positives of xenotransfusions is they can be quite big. Now, um, in the latest um, ISFM guidelines, they suggest not giving a particularly big unit. And I understand that they say probably giving about the same volume as you would a feline unit. And I understand that probably they don't necessarily want to give too much blood because potentially that might um worsen the reaction when it's broken down i do understand that but actually if you've got a cat bleeding in surgery um you may want to give more than a standard feline unit of you know 35 mils you may want to give um maybe 50 60 you could even give 100 mils of um canine blood if your um if your cat is bleeding and it needs that resuscitation So I think it's probably worth probably worth thinking, trying to work out. And because you have more of an option, you could think, how much blood do I want to give? Um, And you can use the formulae that are available. There's quite a few different formulae, but I tend to just use the um, one mil of packed red cells increases um, PCV. One mil per kilo of packed red cells increases PCV by about one percent. So you could use, you could work out, say, if you've got a cat with a a PCV of eight, maybe aim for it to be, um, aim for its PCV being, say, 20. And that would allow you to give more maybe than a standard, you could give more there than a a standard feline transfusion would generally allow you to give. Um, Like I say, it's particularly important in ones that are bleeding or have got blood loss anemia because they tend to be hypovolemic. Um, conversely, if you've got a patient that's a uvolemic anemic, so they've got normal blood volume, but they're anemic, say, for example, due to lack of production or more commonly destruction, like an IMHA cat, remember, it's really easy to volume overload um, a cat much more than a, um, a dog. So I would give um, choose the volume you give quite carefully. But another good thing that you can do with you know, transfusion, or in fact, a feline transfusion as well, is remember you want your blood product not to be at room temperature for any more than four hours. But you can take your blood product and store it, um, the volume you want to give, store it in the fridge and take out syringes and give them four hourly each syringe lasting only four hourly at a time did that make sense dom do I need to explain that a bit better
0: no no I, see, I think you did you you're so you're you're saying see so the, the benefit of a xeno you know, transfusion to a cat is is actually the the volumes that you can administer and and to try and sort of calculate that for the for the patient so um and it and to and it's not something necessarily um we do all the time but I was considering that um, and actually having a conversation with one of the transfusion nurses about it because of the different size of cats that we have and obviously the the different uh, um, uh, um, percentage of, of pack cell volume or, or hemoglobin that they they have in them makes us makes it quite as variable feast to say that we just give one um, uh, volume to to the cats and and obviously that was you know we can give as much as we 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 want um and uh i know you were very clear about actually the benefit of of giving um, even a larger volume slowly is that you can just put divide it up into syringes and keep those syringes in the fridge and administer that over a, a, like a twenty four hour period as long as the syringes are only out for um four hours during that during that transfusion. So no yeah. I think, I think yeah, that's yeah, very yeah
1: I wouldn't probably give it for any more than twenty-four hours though because it, then we start to go into the territory of are we essentially kind of giving a second xenotransfusion? So I kind of use twenty-four hours of my maximum time. And actually that's also the maximum time because you'll have breached the unit at that point and it will be open. So you can't give it for more than 24 hours. So that's why you chose that cutoff probably. but in terms of actual your original question, which was, do you administer it in any different way? No, no, you don't. You um, you still use a filter, um, and um, but and you know uh, we tend to use a, a test dose of maybe one mil per kilo per hour for the first half hour, and monitor in exactly the same way.
0: And and it's great that um, that you've you've published something on this because it's something that appeared as sort of. Um, uh, a few um, either anecdotal parts at the end of a of a, of an article that I can can think of or, or um i think there's a, a case report as well in, in the in the sort of recent literature but it, it's great that you've um published i actually i can't remember how how many cats but can i ask you about the the outcome uh, associated with administering a xenotransfusion please?
1: yes yes you definitely can i think it was 49 cats um and um yeah just in terms of um publication do you know what i think that's so true because um the reason we wanted to put it out there is i remember ages ago um at an evex congress um someone talking about xenotransfusions and saying they were useful and it was amanda bogue and she said well that sounds amazing can you publish something please can you get it out there because you're right we can't we want to be able to have something that's not just anecdotes, that's been tested and reviewed and we can have something that we can have confidence in and that's why we did it really because we needed something out there that then can give people confidence to be doing something you talked about legality um and you know the process is quite nerve wracking um and so having confidence that we know what's going to happen is 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 much better so you, if you want to thank anyone you should thank Amanda really because she was the stimulus behind it from like about 2008 or something <laughs> um but in terms of outcome um so in the literature that is out there like you say a few case series um and our study and a couple of case reports um what seems to be the major uh, proponent of um outcome is actually what was the underlying disease so it uh, we can't see anything that necessarily associates xenotransfusion with mortality It's seems and and, and that's that, to some degree makes sense you know it'd have to be so blunt and so bad for you if it was associated with decreased mortality um the outcome for these cats was generally poor but that was because you don't generally use a xenotransfusion unless the cats are really, really, really sick and you don't have time to get blood or they're actually already dead. You're performing CPR, for example, as we discussed before. Um, So it's self-fulfilling that these cats are not going to necessarily do very well. But the ones that did do well were generally ones that had surgical disease that maybe bled during surgery. And those cats actually had no evidence of adverse outcome due to the xenotransfusion. I am interested in whether there is more to the acute kidney injury story. I'd like to look at that more and see whether these patients actually do have maybe subclinical um, or even clinical AKI that we're not noticing or picking up on. But because... The, um, there's such a variation in their underlying disease processes, and because they're often so sick, it's hard to um, whittle out what maybe any increase in creatinine may be due to.
0: So, so, would it be fair to say, Karen, so the the outcome would be the same as giving a transfusion to a to a cat um, normally of of of, uh, of species specific blood? So, if you were to give a cat cat blood, it really depends on the. Um, on the underlying disease process that that patient has, which really dictates its outcome rather than the transfusion
1: yeah if we're talking about mortality yes if you're thinking about other things so I guess we could look at other outcome things did they need a second transfusion you're probably more likely to need a second transfusion if you have a xenotransfusion than if you have a feline transfusion um though some of the cases didn't some of the cases just had one xenotransfusion and did fine and those are the ones like I said that tend to again have blood loss as their underlying cause um we can't, as I say, I'd love to look more at detail of um, acute kidney injury as, as a, a measure of morbidity, um, but... Um were they still alive? Yes, I think it's totally due to um due to the underlying cause
0: and and so you you just said there Karen, you'd like to have a look at whether whether there is any clinical or subclinical kidney injury in, in patients that receive um, a xenotransfusion is there is there anything else that doing the doing the study actually made you think that we should look at even in um even in species specific uh, blood transfusions
1: Ooh, well yeah, so much. I mean there's so much still to do in transfusion medicine. And I, I think the recent um tracks guidelines that were out in JVEC, and actually that JVEC edition um from this year, I think it's March, April, is a transfusion special edition. It's got loads of really exciting transfusion um articles in there. Um but one of the things are the tracks guidelines, which are the transfusion reaction um guidelines, and they have um show how to how we're dealing with how we should probably ideally deal with transfusions and um, transfusion reactions how we like um diagnose them and should treat them but they're amazing and basically show how much we still have to do and how much um, literature or how much further research is required so transfusion reactions is something I'm particularly interested in and I think partly because of the xenos because you see these hemolytic transfusion reactions
0: and I should just say that J- JVEC to the uh, to the, the un, um well people who don't know say that's the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Um that we have lots of abbreviations for, for things don't we and in fact I think we love uh, the confess- acronym uh, yeah, and Professor Chan normally quizzes us on, on them to make sure they're, they're accurate in, in what we're saying. Um so uh, so that that's that's um, all that's all very interesting. And and are you are you g- g- following up with the um with your study on xenotransfusions? Are you gonna gonna um collect more data?
1: Yeah, so my colleague um or our colleague, Erica Tinson, um, is looking at um getting some more information together about um, xenotransfusions, and maybe it was interesting. In in Alice's paper, there were uh, a few. Uh, cats that had um apparently febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reactions so where they just de- develop a fever but no overt underlying causes obvious and we're looking she's looking at transfusion reactions within the first 24 hours of a xeno and it looks like maybe with closer inspection maybe there are some acute hemolytic transfusion reactions within that time period so she's looking at that and that hopefully should um be um coming out in the uh um, in the vaguely near future.
0: And um, the actual sort of technique about how to administer and whether you used, I, I didn't actually ask, did you, do you use a filter for, um, um, for administering Canine blood to cats in a similar way that you you would using
1: cat blood to cats. Yeah, absolutely, exactly the same administration process in terms of lines and, um, in terms of filters, um, standard standard protocol, not keeping the blood at um, room temperature for more than four hours, etc., and very close monitoring.
0: And the any other thing I'd like to ask from, from your from your colleagues, Karen, have have you had a mixed reaction for actually publishing something on xenotransfusions?
1: Yeah, I think um there are definitely people who are very um disturbed by the idea but like I say I, I see it as a pragmatic thing um you uh, are in a particular situation and there's no point being purist about something and saying you shouldn't give canine blood to a cat and then watching it die from anemia um you know watch it bleed out that you're in the situation you're in every time and that's in some ways that's the amazing thing to me about veterinary medicine it's about innovation and um pragmatic decisions and trying to make the best possible decision for as i say that owner and that cat in that situation
0: and i, I think um that's a, a great point to finish it off there unless you think that we've missed anything particularly about uh, xenotransfusions karen
1: hey think so no thank you so much don thank you for letting me wax lyrical one of my favorite topics
0: well, well i'm sure i i think what we're trying to do, uh, karen is get you on a, another podcast to uh, to talk about transfusion reactions and, and what we should do for that but um but uh, I, I know you're very busy so i will wrap it up there um and so many thanks for your time today karen and thank you for listening so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you leave us a five-star review on apple podcast that'd be great don't forget to tell your friends vet friends or others we don't care who listens to the show we'll place some show notes on the obviously pages and send a, a link to um the the paper that uh, alice and karen um uh, were, were were involved in and um, so just type in obviously clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email rvc.ac.uk or tweet at nonbarfield. until next time bye bye